Uh, we're going to continue reading from the Bible, uh, which will be the sermon Bible reading. As you can see on the screen, it's Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 18 to 35. We're looking at John the Baptist. John's disciples told him about all these things. Um, all these things, I guess, is referring to the signs that Jesus has been doing. We'll continue. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you see? Sorry, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, because they had not been baptised by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Uh, year six to eight, can uh, head off to uh, their... Teaching times now. For everyone else, good morning. Uh, in case you haven't met me, my name is Ben. I'm one of the ministers here at uh, Harrington Park, Anglican. Uh, I've been a little bit under the weather, but I'm nonetheless always delighted to bring the Word of God to bear upon us. Uh, let me lead us in prayer as we come to this uh, wonderful part of Luke's Gospel. Let's pray. Let we thank you, Heavenly Father, again for your servant Luke who has uh, put together this orderly account so that we can be assured of our faith in Jesus, his person and work. Father, help us to concentrate, to have open hearts and minds as we listen to your word this morning so that we might grow in Christ-likeness and therefore bring glory to him and in his name we pray. Amen. Can you all hear me okay? Yeah. Beautiful. 
So, question, what gets in the way of people coming to know and to love Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour? What gets in the way of people making that choice to live with him as Lord? For me, I remember when I was thinking about becoming a Christian. That was a while back now. I was 19 years old. at least in terms of my physical age. I once showed that to Stacey, you know, the first thing she said? She said, thank God I didn't know you then. (laughs) I was 19, and before I'd ever heard the gospel message explained properly, before I'd heard it, I had become friends with a few Christians. Uh, But there were a few things that meant I wouldn't be interested in becoming one. Firstly, I was quite small-minded, and the whole no sex outside of marriage thing was a bit of a turn-off. Secondly, I was very worried about what my friends and my family might think of me uh, if I'd become a Christian, because I remember myself thinking that Christians had to be the biggest losers on the face of the planet. So if that's what I thought about them, well, what are people going to think about me if I, uh, if I became one? As it happens, I've since learned that there are actually lots of possible answers to the question of what gets in the way of people knowing Christ as Lord. But one that we almost never think of, one that I certainly haven't thought of that much until I've uh, spent some time in this passage this week, is, well, I'm not going to say it just yet, because I want you to listen. But it is something that I think we learn from the passage and I hope it actually becomes clear as we go through. I'm hoping you've got uh, the Bible open uh, at that passage, Luke 7, beginning verse 18. Now, just by way of background, in the section that we looked at last week, we saw that Jesus had healed the servant of a Roman centurion, right? And he'd raised uh, the dead son of a widow in this tiny, insignificant town called Nain. If you were here last week, hopefully that jogs your memory. Uh, Jesus used his divine power to show uh, kindness and compassion, and more importantly, as we learnt last week, to show that he is the one who can take away the sting of death, namely judgment on account of our sin. And I love that about Jesus. That's every reason to put your faith in him, and it's one of the greatest things about putting your trust in Jesus is to know that uh, beyond the grave, I need not fear judgment. He's taken it away. I hope you love that about him too. But when John the Baptist hears about this stuff, he hears what Jesus is doing, he reckons there's something missing. Something isn't quite right. Something is not as John had expected it to be. John asks a question about Jesus. It's a very important question because it gets repeated word for word in Luke's account. Read with me from verse 18. It says, John's disciples told him about these things, the things Jesus had been doing. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Then interestingly, it repeats it. Verse 20, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, 
Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? It's a very Old Testament thing. When you want to establish a firm testimony of someone in the Old Testament, you need at least two people. So John sends two people. He, he's really keen on getting answered this question. Now, John already knows that Jesus is the Christ. He knows he's the Messiah. He basically taught it. He identified Jesus as the Christ when he saw him. So I think for the reason, the question that John asked, I think the reason he asked that question is he's expecting Jesus to be doing something different or doing something that it seems he's not doing. To my mind, and for anyone who remembers, uh, this is a bit like Marvin the Martian and his favourite, fa- famous line, which I thought would be really popular, but I did a Facebook test and not that many people remember it, where he goes, where's the kaboom? There's supposed to be... Yeah, but of course I could rely on Bertie. That's kind of how like Johnny's feeling at the moment. You see, we might not think like this, but for the faithful Jew who read his Old Testament properly, when the Messiah comes, you expect a call for people to repent and, and to have their sins forgiven... And then you expect judgment. Let me give you an example. Malachi chapter 4, it's in the Old Testament. God said that, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day the Lord comes. Now, we know that John kind of corresponds to that Elijah figure and Jesus is definitely the Lord. So where's the great and dreadful day? John expected that it was coming. You remember back a number of weeks now, we looked at chapter 3 of Luke and John had given a baptism for the repentance and forgiveness of sins and then he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. He didn't care that much for popularity at uh, John the Baptist. He figured that the wrath was coming very soon. He said, The axe is already at the root of the trees. It's already there. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, John had finished his baptism. He'd even baptised Jesus, you remember, who comes after him. Repentance has been preached. So surely now it's time for, for the kingdom. It's time for judgment to begin. But Jesus in the back of Nowheresville, helping out the Romans, of all people. And raising the dead, as opposed to smiting the wicked. I've always wanted to use the word smiting in a sermon. (laughs) To illustrate what I think John's concern is, in what I admit is a very exaggerated and rather humorous way, it's kind of like John's worried he's getting a little something like this. But what he was expecting may have been a little bit more like this. So what's it going to be? Is Jesus going to be the one who does what John expected the Messiah would do? Well, the short answer is yes, but perhaps not in the way that John had imagined it. Let's look at how Jesus responds Uh, Reading from uh, verse 21, it says, At that time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed 
to the poor. Now, that doesn't necessarily make things much better for us, does it? Because it just, at first glance, it sounds like Jesus is only confirming John's suspicions. It looks like the report that John's going to get is basically, yep, Jesus is doing more of the same thing. He's healing, he's restoring, he's blessing, he's resurrecting, he's preaching the good news. But here, in these words, Jesus is actually alluding to some very important Old Testament verses and ideas. And the overall gist of the verses he's alluding to is that God's salvation comes surrounded by his judgment. I'm going to work through this for a minute. It's a big point. It's important that we grasp this. See, once upon a time, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah about the day that he would bring the nations into judgment. And in Isaiah 34, we read, and the words will be on the screen, their land will be drenched with blood and the dust will be soaked with fat, for the Lord has set a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. That's clearly judgment, right? Yet as it happens, for God's faithful remaining people, we read in Isaiah 35, that's the next section, the very things that Jesus was alluding to. It says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame will leap like deer. The ears, the blindness, the lame. That's an image of God's people receiving salvation as the judgment comes upon the wicked. And Isaiah confirms it in the next verses that come after this part where we read, and I've got a little quote there, uh, but only the redeemed will walk there and those the Lord has rescued will return. So there's a basic pattern. On either side there's judgment, but as it happens, or, or, or as judgment may be about to happen, in the middle you get a message of salvation. And that's not a fluke. We see that again in another part of Isaiah that Jesus has alluded to in his words here. Isaiah 26, the Israelites are liable to judgment because by their own admission we have not brought salvation to the earth, the people of the world have not come to life. That's a very big call for Israel, that was their whole mission, they failed. Then we get the word of salvation, which Jesus was alluding to. But your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. And then we learn that this happens as if it's somehow in the middle of judgment. Because in the, ne- the very next verse, it says, Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. So, in effect, when Jesus gives this report to John, he's giving him a very big, loud and clear message. He's saying, yes, I am healing I am saving, I am raising the dead, I am giving sight to the blind, but it's precisely because you see me doing these things that you can be sure that judgment is also and will also be happening. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus actually links his healing of the blind directly with judgment. It'll come on the screen. In John's Gospel, we read, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. 
And if you think about it, basically, that's actually always been the case. It's always been the case that the context for God's saving activity is His judging activity. I'll give you a few examples. Think about Adam and Eve, right? Right at the beginning. They are cast out from the garden because they sin against God, and as God pronounces the curses on the serpent and, and Adam and Eve, He, he says... The, uh, one of the offspring from the woman will crush the head of the serpent. As he pronounces the curses, he's also giving the grace. As they're leaving the garden, what does he do? He makes clothes for them. Think about Noah. Quite almost literally, you could say, he is surrounded by judgment. The flood waters open and the, the, the springs come up, but the one thing that's actually salvation is Noah in the midst of it in the ark. Or if not Noah, think about the Passover. The Israelites in Egypt... As the angel of death comes and the, those who have trusted in God's command have put the blood of the lamb on the door so that the angel of death will pass over them. The salvation happens surrounded by the judgment. Psalm 2, the, the, uh, the famous psalm of the Messiah. If you've never read Psalm 2 before, check it out. It's kind of like a national anthem about God's king. And it's a really rousing, very powerful anthem because God's king, he's going to dash those other rulers to pieces like pottery. But right at the end, you get this wonderful verse and people make little stickers out of it. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As God's king brings the judgment, you can take salvation in him. About the days of Elijah, who uh, was being persecuted by the evil king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They'd killed heaps of the prophets. Elijah got to the point where he thought, you know what, I'm probably the last genuine Israelite left. And he was freaking out and he says, I want to die. But God goes, no, mate, here, have some food. And by the way, there are 7,000 who I've stopped from bowing the knee to the false god Baal. The, The salvation that God constantly gives all throughout history always comes amidst his judging activity. And of course, we see that ultimately in the cross of our Lord Jesus. You see, it's the message of the cross itself. Jesus alone has the power to take away that horrible sin that actually makes me liable to God's judgment because he died bearing that wrath and that judgment of God, but so that he might offer me my salvation. Salvation comes packaged in judgment when we look at the cross. But for some, that very same message, that message of the cross, will in fact confirm them in their hardness and leave them in the place of judgment. You see, the gospel message itself is the thing that brings people into God's kingdom. Yet that very same message also confirms people in their hardness. Verse 23, that's why Jesus says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. You see, as Jesus proclaims the good news, both judgment and salvation are taking place. The Apostle Paul makes that abundantly clear. He tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness, not to those who will be perishing, but to those who are perishing. But that same message is also at the same time the power of God to those who are being saved. The gospel, the message, the person himself, Jesus, can be the reason people will not come. One thing that prevents people from entering the kingdom of heaven 
is the gospel message. One thing that ensures that people enter the kingdom of heaven is the gospel message. Jesus says, blessed are you if you don't stumble or literally aren't offended by me, by what he's doing and what he's teaching. So the question I need to ask everyone here is, well, which one describes you? You come here, there's a very good chance, well, I certainly hope there is, that you're often hearing the good news about Jesus. Which one describes you? Blessed are you if you do not stumble on account of the gospel. Now, what Jesus goes on to do after this is to show just how blessed we are if we haven't stumbled on account of him, if we haven't taken offence to him and his gospel. And then he gives a warning for those who may take offence at him and his message. Uh, Well, we start with a blessing. It's a wonderful assurance that he gives. Verse 24, look at verse 24. After John's messengers, messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? In other words, was John a bit like a politician? Swayed by whatever was popular at the time in order to to get a following? No. These people, the blessed people, they weren't looking for a politician. Those who are truly blessed know that politics and popularity is not the answer. So verse 25, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. Those who are truly blessed know that wealth and power and status, well, they're not the things to follow. No, the thing that the truly blessed people want to follow is the Word of God. And back in the day, someone who speaks the Word of God is called a prophet. So verse 26, but what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, are more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So John was not just any prophet. He's the prophet who will prepare people to meet with God himself. Therefore, we know actually the right way to meet with God must and can only be in humility because what did John preach? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That means I've got to say, God, I'm sinful. I need something that I can't get by myself. John says, you want to be baptised in that? You want to be immersed into that way of thinking? Good, come out here. That's what the Word of God says you should do. And so if you're humble, you'll not be offended by Jesus when he makes it clear that you're a needy person. You're not able to offer God anything. I'm not able to offer God anything. You need to put your hand out and ask Jesus for help. His death, his resurrection, his spirit, his gospel is what saves you. And if that's you, which I certainly hope it is well, then you are truly blessed. Verse 28, check this out. Verse 28, favourite verse in this whole section. I tell you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, I know this because I do it myself and I suspect it's the same for other people. If you ever think to yourself, gee, I'm a hopeless Christian... I don't know as much as everybody else. I don't pray as well as everybody else. 
I don't get things as much as everybody else. I've got more sin, more struggle than everybody else, which is always funny because three seats away, there's someone that has the same sin and struggle. If that's you, if that's the kind of thing that goes through your mind, if you know Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour, you are greater than the greatest Old Testament prophet, John. A lot of people, myself included, have this idea it's going to be so cool when we get to heaven because, you know, you get to say, hey, Moses, I want to meet him, right? Or Elijah, I want to check him out and see what he looks like. Or even John the Baptist, maybe I want to meet him, see if he's still wearing the camel hair or whatever it is, right? A lot of people have that thought, but how often have you thought to yourself, maybe they're actually really looking forward to meeting you, Did Jesus not say that if you are least in the kingdom, you are greater than the greatest of the Old Testament prophets? Yes, he did. What a wonderful assurance we have when we're not offended by Jesus and his powerful message of salvation and judgment, but when we trust in him. Even when we think, man, I'm I'm a hopeless Christian, I can't do this or that, or I've got to... The least in the kingdom, you are greater than all the Old Testament prophets, right? That's a wonderful assurance. Be of good courage. Rejoice in these words. But for those with great pride, especially who express their pride by being religious, it's easy to do that. It's easy to be a a, a proud religious person. Well, for those sorts of people, there's a serious warning. Uh, Read with me from verse 29. It says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptised by John. That's code for those Pharisees and the experts in the law had not seen the need to humble themselves to repent and seek forgiveness of sins, which is what John's ministry was about. You know, the, 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 even the tax collectors, right? The scummy tax collectors, well, they didn't need to do that much in order to be humble, right? They knew what people thought of them. It was easy for them, in one sense, to accept John, to be baptised by John. But the Pharisees, the experts of the law, they're the kind of people who are into the power, the status, the wealth. So it's very hard for them to get rid of the pride, unlike the scummy tax collector. And it's like, no matter what gets done or said for a person like that, they are simply unable to grasp the idea that they're in fact in desperate need of help. Verse 31, you can hear the frustration. Jesus wanted to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the pipe for you, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't cry. But John the Baptist came, neither eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he's got a demon. Then the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. Friend of tax collectors, I can't win. Jesus' message, if you have... That kind of idea of self-sufficiency, I can come to God on my own terms, I can be a good religious person, I can make myself right with God if I do X, Y, or Z. I don't need help. I'm not a helpless, weak sinner who needs to cry out to Jesus in humility. If, if if, If that's the kind of way you're... Well, nothing will work. You can't get it. Unless you become like a little child dependent, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. 
It's pride, it's self-sufficiency that makes people get offended at Jesus and his message. The one message that brings salvation ends up being the same message that confirms them in their judgment. Jesus teaches, you are blind. I am blind. We need our sight recovered. Jesus teaches, we are lame. We can't walk. We need his help. Jesus teaches that on account of sin, we are dead, unable to please God, unclean. We need him to raise us. It takes incredible humility to accept that and not be offended by it. Blessed are we, though, if we are humble enough not to be offended, but rather to put our hands out in humble, childlike dependence and say, yes, I need you, Jesus. That is the wise thing to do. Which is why, verse 35, Jesus finished by saying, but wisdom is proved right by all her children, which basically means it's not going to be long to answer John's question. It's not going to be long until the judgment that people are under now becomes their final judgment. And all those who have lived their lives in humble dependence on Jesus will be seen to have made the right choice. It may be the case that as yet you have not come to Jesus in complete, desperate, needy humility. You've thought that being a Christian is kind of like a good thing that I do. Or like I'm one of those churches or I'm a cultural Christian because, hey, that's sort of the thing that defines me but you've never actually realised you're in dire need of Jesus, what he can offer, his death, which takes away your sin. Uh, I can only very strongly urge, plead and encourage you to actually do that. Just tell God, say, God, I realise I'm, you know, I'm full of pride, I need uh, to be humbled, I need to trust in Jesus to be right with you. Please let me do that. That would be a wonderful thing to, to say to God. If you do want to do something like that, for goodness sake, come and speak to me about it. I'd love nothing more than to talk about that. And for those that have, well, what are some of the implications of this for us? Well, you know that old expression, uh, people say sometimes, you know, now and again, you have to swallow your pride. I always like that expression because to me, it almost feels like something that literally has to happen every now and then, right? So you know you've got to fess up to something or you know you've got to do something that's going to make you look like a fool. And I don't know, maybe I'm abnormal in this, but I actually feel it in my throat sometimes when I have to do that. Is that a thing or is that just me? Yeah, a few people nodding, good, good. There are times when I've got to front up and say, oh, I've done the really wrong thing there and this person's going to think so badly of me when I tell them or when I make it clear. But I have to almost physically go, mm. <laughs> I don't want to do it. But I've found out that that is actually really helpful and therefore the saying's helpful because it doesn't say ignore the fact that this hurts and that you're full of pride. You're not gonna, I'm not going to kid myself, of course. I'm still a sinful person, I've got pride. It says, okay, no, it's there, but you, you're making a choice to follow Jesus. You've got to get rid of that so you swallow your pride. There may be areas now where there's things you know that's like, yeah, someone's done wrong for me, but you know, I've done heaps more wrong in my life or compared to them and I've got to make amends or something like that. And you might just have to go, all right, I'm going to do it and then go and make amends with the person. It's cool. It's cool to have a little thing like that. The second thing is um, (laughs) 
oddly sounds a little bit um, self-centred, but I really hope it's not, is it's really important to pray for your ministers. <laughs> There's no way of getting around this, is there? You've got to pray for me. That's what I want to say. Let me tell you why. When I was first um, doing MTS, Ministry Training Strategy, let's make it about Jono. He's not here, right? We should pray for Jono. <laughs> pray for Jono. When I was first doing Ministry Training Strategy, uh, a really good advice I heard was from this, uh, this guy who was a, a bit ahead in the course in, in his training with me, and he goes... Um, ben, you've got to watch out for the three G's of ministry. I say, what are the three G's of ministry? Easy. Girls, gold and glory. Girls as in, you know, sexual immorality. You've got to be just absolutely above reproach in everything. It's, yeah, you've just got to run a mile. I mean, Jesus says that for all Christians, right? Flee sexual immorality. Better to cut off your right hand than, than, than to be involved in sexual immorality. There's girls. Gold, money, treasure, stuff. Something that makes people in ministry become unstuck is if they get greed. They want to get more. They use their position in order to, to gain either material or financial or, or, or sort of power in terms of their status, right? And the other one, the final one, glory. Something that can undo a minister is when they get a big head and they think they're the bee's knees and they start treating people like they really are like that. That's a good way to screw up your ministry royally. Now, um, no Christian, myself included, is ever above any of those three things. It so happened for me, though, at the time, and I think this has been the case, uh, I, I, I find less struggle on the, the girls and the gold thing but you see, it's harder to point to when a minister's, you know, going to have a problem with pride, with, with glory. I don't know how you sort of point to that. I mean, you see it over time in, in small interactions. Pray for your ministers that they don't get unstuck by one of those three things and very gently, very kindly, very lovingly, because they do cop a lot of abuse and flack, Every now and then, just help them not to have the glory. Put them in their place just a little bit. <laughs> Don't tell Jono I said that when he comes back. Uh, one of the things that I've found really helpful, I sometimes meet one-to-one -one with people, and sometimes the other person, when we pray at the end, will pray like, um, thank you, God, that you've saved him from his sin, and, and, and please help him in the areas of his life where he needs to become more like Jesus. That's an awesome thing. I mean, you should do it with any Christian anyway, right? But it's good for ministers to, uh, to hear that sort of thing. Um, enough talking, let's, let's walk in it. I'm going to lead us in prayer now. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, that message of the cross uh, to those of us who are being saved is the wonderful power of God. And we thank you we have the most wonderful assurance, Father, that even... Uh, those of us who are least in the kingdom are greater than John the Baptist. We thank you for what a wonderful assurance that is. Father, please help us not to be unnecessarily down on ourselves for our performance as Christians or, or for thinking that other Christians are way better than us or anything silly like that. But Father, also on the other end, please help us to stay away from pride, from the very thing that makes that message uh, a message of foolishness and a message of judgment on account of human pride and self-centeredness. Father, 
where there are areas in our lives where we might need to swallow some pride in order to be faithful followers of Christ, please, by your Spirit, work in us so we have the power to do that, uh, so we can bring glory and honour uh, to Him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.